The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston in the sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday, in person or on live stream. For details, go to fapc.org. And now, here is Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston. Throughout the season of Lent, Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church has been exploring the vocabulary of belief. We've been looking at words, words that people of faith have used for thousands of years. In the past, these words and the stories attached to them have drawn people deeper into relationship with God. Might they do the same for us? Should we tattoo them on our hearts? Last Sunday, Reverend Sarah Speed helped us consider the word glory. She invited us to contemplate moments when we sense the presence of God, moments when our eyes grow wide and we exhale a whistling breath, glory. Today, on Palm Sunday, our attention turns to a term of critical importance for people of faith. You cannot walk through Holy Week, you cannot consider the fullness of the story of Jesus without grappling with this heavy sounding word. Our word for today is atonement. This morning to begin wrapping our minds around atonement, we're going to listen to two passages from scripture. First, let us hear the story of Palm Sunday as recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, beginning with the 12th verse. The great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem so they took the branches of, of palm trees and they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Our second reading comes from Paul's letter to the Philippians. In this passage, Paul quotes an early Christian creed. Some historians believe that, that this text represents the core of what the first Christians believed. And with that in mind, I'm wondering if you would read Philippians chapter 2, beginning with the fifth verse out loud with me. It's there in your bulletin. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself 
and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God, for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. It's Palm Sunday. You know the story. The people of Jerusalem line the streets. They wave palms at a rabbi riding by on a donkey. They bestow a title on Jesus, King of Israel. And they shout over and over a peculiar word, Hosanna. Scholars' best guess is that Hosanna is a contraction of two Hebrew terms, Yashaw, meaning to save, and Na, meaning to pray. In other words, the crowd looked at Jesus, the rumored Messiah, clip-clopping through town, and they cry out to him, save us. Why do you think the people in Jerusalem shouted, save us, at Jesus? What would prompt you to, to run out onto Fifth Avenue during one of this city's raucous parades, yelling, save us, save me? It's not a first date kind of question. When's the last time you pleaded for salvation? People who cry out for help are distressed. They're desperate. And, and at the same time, their shouts cling to hope. Hosanna is infused with, with the very thing that Reverend Sarah talked about last week, a, a sense that God might be near. And this, I think, explains the behavior of the crowds on Palm Sunday. When gentle Jesus rides through town on his simple steed, People sense the glory of God. Salvation is at hand. Hosanna. Worshippers often tell me that Palm Sunday is one of their favorite days of the church year. We like the parades, the pageantry, the children. But on a deeper level, I think we're drawn to Palm Sunday because... We've been there. There have been times when our plans have unraveled, when our hearts have seen no way forward, when we have pleaded that God would throw us a lifeline. Hosanna, save us. When you get down to it, we, we cry out because we figure this is God's job. <laughs> God's in the saving business. Even people who don't believe in God, like atheist Chris Hitchens, assert that if there was a God, God's job would be rescuing people from horrible things. 
Jesus saves, says the bumper sticker, and 99% of Christians nod in agreement. <laughs> but our cohesion doesn't last. <laughs> it goes poof as soon as some fool preacher poses a follow-up question. What does God save us from? <laughs> How does God save us? The answers we give can get us sideways with each other. They compel us to wrestle with our word for the day, atonement. The English word atonement traces its heritage back to the Hebrew term kippur, as in Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. In its most basic sense, kippur means to cover. What is being covered? Well, the classic answer, of course, is sin. Two weeks ago, we defined sin as being something more than a list of prohibited behaviors. Sin, we said, is a general condition of brokenness that afflicts all humankind. And that definition reminds me of a bouncy old Bob Dylan number a happy-sounding tune that's covered by some sneakily rough lyrics. The song is entitled, Everything is Broken. And in it, Dylan lists, you guessed it, all sorts of things that are broken. He starts with ordinary items, but before long, Dylan begins to list things that cannot be fixed at your local hardware store. Let's see if I can get this. Broken cutters, broken saws, broken buckles, broken laws, broken bodies, broken bones, broken voices on broken phones. Take a deep breath, feel like you're choking. Everything is broken. I got another job waiting for me out there. Now seriously, the old Bobster's not wrong. There are cracks that run through this world. There, there are broken places everywhere in our society. We've developed rifts with family members and friends and coworkers. We've damaged the ties that, that bind us to our neighbors and, and to the planet itself. At the root of all these fractured bonds, says the good book, lies the biggest break of them all, humanity's broken relationship with God. And this brings us back to our word for the day. Atonement is faith's way of talking about how the break between humanity and God is healed. You, you can see this reflected in our English word. Atone is simply two very small words that we've welded together, at and one. To atone is to become at one with God. It's to live in sync, in harmony with God and God's purposes for our lives. How does this at one happen? How does God save us? Well, down through the centuries, 
Christian communities have answered this question in a whole lot of different ways, and these answers comprise what theologians call atonement theory. I just saw one of the choir members yawn, <laughs> and I get it. <laughs> Let's take a quick tour. Before we depart, though, I should say that there are over a dozen different atonement theories. Each one has a fancy name, a set of scripture texts that goes with it, and various theologians who've embraced it. So to honor our limited time, I propose that we conduct a brief survey of the most well-known atonement theories. And I propose that we do this by focusing on the Christian calendar. Hop on the atonement bus with me. I think this will make sense in a minute. The first stop on our atonement tour is Christmas Day. Those who point to December 25th argue that God saves us by becoming human, by being born as a baby in Bethlehem. On Christmas, God bridges the great divide. In the incarnation, God embraces all of what it means to be human, the joys, the hopes, the struggles, the betrayals, and yes, even the suffering and the dying. As such, Jesus serves as a moral exemplar for us. God becomes human, and then God teaches us how to be human. Look at Christmas, say some, and you can see God reaching out and healing the rift between humanity and the divine. Atonement begins when, when the angels sing and, and the shepherds dance for joy. It begins, as my friend Tom R. likes to say, when love puts on human skin. The second stop on our atonement tour is Good Friday. Good Friday is a popular place. <laughs> popular if you're trying to explain how God saves humanity. Almost every Christian atonement theory wants to claim a piece of Good Friday. Let's look at two different ways in which people believe that Good Friday stands at the heart of God's efforts to save us. First, there are those who believe that God saves us by paying a ransom for our sorry and sinful hides. If you've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, you may remember that in that story, a young boy, Edmund, betrays his siblings and becomes captive to the White Queen. The White Queen announces that she intends to execute the boy. In the face of this threat, Aslan, the benevolent and powerful lion who rules over Narnia pays a ransom to free Edmund. Aslan offers his life to the White Queen in exchange for that of the boy. The ransom theory of atonement holds that a cosmic swap, if you will, happens on, on Good Friday. The logic goes like this. Humanity has fallen into the clutches of the devil. We've, we've sold ourselves thoroughly to the powers of evil. Our fate is sealed, and yet Satan is willing to let us go for a price. The devil demands God's beloved son. 
The second approach to the atonement that focuses on Good Friday contends that humanity's sinful ways have put us in debt, not to the devil, but to God. God has filled, these folk argue, with righteous wrath at humankind for our sinful ways. As such, God would be justified in punishing us. Indeed, God is ready to do so. But at the last moment, the Holy One pivots and accepts a substitute. Humanity's much-deserved punishment falls upon God's beloved Son. This is the so-called substitutionary theory of atonement. It claims that we are redeemed when Jesus bears the brunt of God's wrath on our behalf. It's one of the most common and controversial ways that people explain how God saves. Many today reject substitutionary atonement, including my friend June, who I hope is watching. June and others point out that the wrathful God at the heart of this theory looks more bloodthirsty than good. I agree. And this is my least favorite stop on our tour. But I also have to admit that there are mitigating factors that have softened my criticism of substitutionary atonement. First, substitutionary atonement is often embraced by Christians who actually are in prison. There is incarcerated individuals say no more humbling and freeing thing when doing time for your own wrongful acts than to hear someone say, Christ has already paid a price. Second, on Friday, while listening to the choir's magnificent rendition of Duraflay's Requiem, I must confess that the liberame hit me in a powerful way. This is the moment in the Requiem when the chorus pleads for deliverance from the wrath of God. Now, like most people, I typically find hellfire and brimstone to be either silly or manipulative. But sometimes, sometimes meteor showers of wrath seem right, justified, and maybe the only appropriate response. I was in that sort of mood on Friday night. All this past week, I felt like we should be groveling on our knees, apologizing for the hash that we've made of things, lamenting the clown show that we call politics, confessing that we've been distracted by the antics of grown men while violence consumes our churches and our schools, our homes and our streets. Sometimes I have no trouble picturing the wrath of God no trouble at all. Lord, have mercy upon us. The next stop on our atonement tour is Holy Saturday. 
This location looks sort of like an action movie set. Holy Saturday, the day that falls between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. <laughs> it's the day when Christians confess that Christ has descended into hell. Basically, this approach to atonement claims that on Holy Week, Christ does battle on our behalf to save us. Jesus defeats the devil, or depending on who you ask, death itself. There's a, there's a fantastic fresco in, in Florence by Italian master Fra Angelico in which Jesus kicks down the gates of hell, whoops up on Satan, and rescues humanity from the forces of evil. Call me a Philistine, but I like a little Rocky Balboa in my atonement theory. <laughs> Moving on, the final stop on our atonement tour is a fairly modern one. It ranges across Good Friday through Easter and really culminates when, when Christ ascends to sit at the right hand of God. This approach to atonement comes from the writings of a theologian we've talked about a number of times this winter and spring, Rene Girard. Girard argues that Jesus is the ultimate scapegoat. Girard notes that on Good Friday, it's the crowd who shouts, crucify him. This is no ransom paid to the devil. This is not punishment doled out by an angry God. Instead, Jesus is an innocent victim, one of many, on whom people project their anger, their wrath. As such, the cross exposes humankind. It makes us face our most violent instincts. And all this happens when God flips the story of this brutalized man on its head. God praises the scapegoat. Listen again to the passage from Philippians that we read together. God highly exalted him and gave him the name that's above every name. We are saved, says Gerard, when God lifts up Jesus, this one whom humanity once deemed a weak, ineffective, disposable person. Crucify him. This is the one God wants us to venerate and praise. In turning our eyes toward the plight of the scapegoat, says Gerard, God saves us. Okay, so that's our tour. Please watch your step while exiting the atonement bus. So what did you think? Did the tour give you clarity, or did it leave you scratching your head? <laughs> Come on, preacher, so many different theories. Which one's the right one? <laughs> I don't want to answer that for you. I want to say this. I don't think a theory can save us. I'm grateful that smart people have spent a lot of time looking at the events of Holy Week, trying to pinpoint where they see God's saving act. I find their insights helpful, but I'm not sure you can abstract salvation from Christ's story. To understand atonement, to feel atonement, to soak up the bone-shaking meaning of God's atonement, we need to live it. We need to be like the people of Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. We need to be brave enough to reach down and to confess all that is wrong with our lives and all that is wrong with the world and then to shout, save us. 
And after that, we need to walk the road to Calvary, and we need to watch what God does. This past week, I spent time talking on the phone with my friend Alex Ryerson. Alex lives in Nashville. One of Alex's friends, Mike, lost his nine-year-old daughter, Evelyn, in the shooting at Covenant School. Evelyn was supposed to sing Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World at the school play on Friday. And instead, she was being memorialized by her uncle Jeff. Scott, what do I say to her dad? Alex asked. You talk to people who've gone through terrible things. What do you say? I'm not sure, I responded, that there are words for what your friend is going through. I've been thinking all week about this. And I've come to the conclusion that our faith actually does have a word for moments like this. Not a word of explanation. Not a word that can magically heal a mother or father's heart. But a word meant for shouting in the face of these atrocities. A drastic last line of defense word. We who despair over this country's nonstop roll call of tragedy, we who are fed up with the easy access people have to military-style weapons, we can screw our Palm Sunday courage to the sticking place and shout, Hosanna, save us. Save us from apathy, save us from gridlock, save us from turning away when violence crashes down on the heads of innocence. Please, God, save us, save us from our sins. We can shout this in the streets, and then we can turn and watch Jesus. What will we see? One of the most poignant and gruesome renditions of the crucifixion adorns the cover of your bulletin today. In 1514, Matthias Grunwald, a German artist, painted this life-sized altarpiece. It really is about 10 feet tall for the monastery of St. Anthony in Isenheim. In it, Grunwald depicts a mangled Jesus whose skin has taken on an awful gray-green hue. Our eyes dart away, we look for relief in the mourners, Jesus Mary, Jesus' mother Mary, Mary Magdalene, and our eyes flip across to John the Baptist who stands on the opposite side of Jesus, and that may strike us as being a little strange because by the time Jesus is crucified, John is long dead, it's surreal to place him at the foot of the cross. Adding to the surreal, we spot near John's feet a lamb holding a cross. Surely this evokes the ancient lit liturgy, behold, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the end, though, this painting will not allow us to linger on those surreal curiosities. John the Baptist refocuses us. With an elongated finger, he points at the crucified Jesus. Again, we wince at Christ's horribly curled fingers, his torn feet, and the sores that cover his body. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, argued that it's every Christian preacher's job to point like John the Baptist in this painting to the crucified Jesus. Why? Why did Luther think that? Well, he thought that because he believed that to stare at the cross is to see atonement, at one moment. This? How? One last story. In the 1500s, the monastery of St. Anthony in Isenheim, where this, this altarpiece resides, was a hospital for those suffering from skin diseases. While being treated, patients would go into the chapel and there they would pray and they would pray while looking at Grunewald's Jesus. They would stare at a man who was covered with the same gray-green sores that covered their own skin. Surely, the prophet Isaiah wrote, surely he has borne our infirmities and shared our afflictions. My friends, God does not turn away from the world's brokenness. God dwells in the midst of it. God suffers it. The testimony of our faith is that as we walk the path of Holy Week, when we stare at the agony of Jesus, we are seeing the face of God. And we are also seeing ourselves. In this, the chasm is bridged. Our hearts yearn for this reconciliation, don't they? Deep within us, there's a primal cry, bubbling, swimming, hopefully toward the surface on this day. Do we dare give it voice? Hosanna, save us. Go forth from this place and into our holy week with Hosanna on your lips. And as you go, have courage. Hold fast to what is good. Return to no one evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all people. Love and serve the Lord. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and given you a measure of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you would like to make a donation to support this audio ministry, please visit fapc.org give. Thank you and blessings to you on this day.